I invite you to turn with me back in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Our scripture reading earlier was from Luke chapter 5, and our sermon for today I'm planning to take us to two stories from later in Luke's Gospel, Luke 18 and 19. Now, if you've been with us lately, you'll know we have been walking through Philippians together. But as, a, as we're coming into this Sunday, in light of our membership testimonies, baptisms today, I decided to step away for a week from Philippians and instead to look together at two stories from Luke's gospel. They are two stories of the breadth of God's grace, two stories that show us the heart of Jesus. So I think they will encourage our hearts today, but I also hope that these old stories of grace will help prepare us well for some new stories of God's grace in the lives of those who will join the church later today. Again, the main stories that we're going to look at are from the end of Luke 18 and the beginning of Luke 19. But to start with, I want to go back first to the text I read earlier from Luke chapter 5. I want to think of that story, which is the first story where Jesus called a tax collector to follow him. The name of that tax collector in Luke chapter 5, you might remember, is Levi. We probably know him better as Matthew. But to really understand what happened in that story, you have to know a few things about tax collectors in the New Testament time period. And here are just a couple of those things that you would need to know. Okay, so the first thing is that a tax collector in the New Testament time period was viewed extremely negatively, like much more negatively than our own day. And I'm not saying that there is a deep fondness or affection or appreciation for tax collectors in our own day. I mean, I have not heard any of the children in our classes tell me, when I grow up, I want to be a tax collector. But in the New Testament times, in particular, and especially among Jews, tax collectors were viewed very, very negatively. A tax collector in the Jewish world would have been a Jew who worked for the Romans to gather taxes for the Romans from other Jews. Okay. Now that is obviously wouldn't have been popular on its own, but it was far worse than that situation. To get the, to get the position itself as a tax collector, a person likely had to pay a lot of money to get the position, to get the right to be a tax collector. And the main reasons to do it were typically to get power and to get money. The power came because now you would have the power of Rome behind you in your work, and the money would come because the Romans didn't really care how much their tax collectors took from the people as long as they got their fair share. So to become rich, the reason you would pay to get the position was that tax collectors would take more from the people than what was required, and all the people knew exactly what was going on. This was not a surprise to anyone. But the people couldn't do anything about it because the power of Rome was behind the tax collectors. So the Jewish people despised tax collectors. They would be viewed as about as moral as maybe prostitutes. Tax collectors were looked at by Jews as some of the very worst kinds of sinners. So if you think about that, on the one hand, becoming a tax collector did get you things. It got you power and money. But on the other hand, those advantages came at a very steep cost. And here I'm talking about more than just the money you paid to get the position in the first place. 
the cost of being a tax collector would be that you would be, from that point on, an outcast among your own people. From that time on, everyone would know that you had sold out your people. So if you think back to this story that we read about the call of Levi or Matthew in Luke chapter 5, okay, you think about it. Jesus finds him while he's sitting at the tax booth. So he is like on the job. Jesus looks at him and says two words to him, follow me. Levi okay, had likely given up a lot of money to get that position. And he had probably, I mean, he had given up his country and often family ties to get that position. But now Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, comes to him and tells him, leave this all behind and follow me. Now that does not seem very likely that he would do that. But then you read in the text, Luke chapter 5, verse 20, 28, Levi, leaving everything, got up and followed Jesus. And not just that, the next thing you know, in that story is a short story, the next thing you know, Levi is hosting a big meal for Jesus and all of his tax collector buddies. He immediately wants to introduce his friends to the one that he now follows. And we, of course, probably would think that all sounds really great. But in the story, not everybody thinks that that is great. In, in Luke 5, verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes see it, and they begin to grumble at Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? If you're not familiar with the Pharisees, they are well-known in this day for being very devout. And though we tend, especially if we are familiar with the New Testament, we tend to have a very negative view of the Pharisees. They would have been held in very high esteem by the people. They were well-liked in Jesus' day. <clears throat> and they look at this scene, and what do they see? They see Jesus reclining at table, surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. And so they grumble to the disciples, not to Jesus. Why do you do this? They're, it's like they're telling the disciples, how could you follow a guy who does stuff like this? The disciples don't answer. Jesus steps in at that point in the story, and he answers the question himself. Luke 5, 31, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you're well, he says, if you're convinced you're okay, that you're good to go with God, you don't need a physician. I did not come to heal the healthy. He says, instead, I've come to find the sick and to call them to turn to me. And that's his explanation for why he's surrounded at a table with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. Those are exactly the people Jesus came for. Now, throughout Luke's gospel, I wanted to start with that story because you actually see that same kind of story and those same themes throughout Luke's gospel. This is a big theme in the gospel of Luke of Jesus often reaching out to really big sinners and very big outcasts in society. And there's also this other theme that when Jesus does that stuff, he often gets intense opposition from other people in those same stories. But I'm going to leave most of the stories for you to discover on your own. You could look at Luke 7 and 15 for some really good ones. But I'm going to look only at two more, Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 19. That's our text for today. So by the time you get to Luke chapter 18, Jesus has been all over Israel for three years by this point. He is now on his final journey to Jerusalem. And in the Gospel of Luke, he's been heading there for nine chapters. But he's getting really close to the city of Jerusalem by the end of Luke chapter 18. 
He's within 20 miles of the city, and he's going to Jerusalem to complete his mission. He is going there to die. So once again, as they're getting closer to Jerusalem, Jesus pulls his disciples aside privately in Luke 18, and he tells them in plain language what is in front of him. Mocking, flogging, execution, resurrection. The disciples hear the words, but they don't understand anything that he, that he tells them. So the journey goes on. Jesus is now about 20 miles from Jerusalem, and they're coming close to the city of Jericho. We can only imagine what's going through Jesus' mind as he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders towards the city. Now, to the first story. Look at Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. I want to look at two stories, and I want to compare and contrast them. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So at the beginning, the crowds are trying to keep the beggar quiet, to keep him away from Jesus. Jesus has more important things to do, more important people to be with, they think. But the man just keeps crying out louder and louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. See, the blind man in this story has apparently already heard about Jesus and all that he's been doing, and it even seems like he's drawn his own conclusion about Jesus before he's ever met him. Just from what he's heard, he has concluded Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of David. He is seeing far better than most of the people in the Gospels. This man is the king God promised to send us. He's the son of David that Isaiah prophesied who can open blind eyes and set the prisoners free. And so as the crowd is doing whatever they can to stop him, he just keeps crying out and Jesus stops everything that he's doing for this man. He commands them to bring the blind beggar to him. And then he asks him, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, that is a great illustration of what Paul talks about in Philippians about Jesus as a humble servant. Jesus asks a blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? It seems like the blind man who's <clears throat> seeing Jesus pretty well 
knows that Jesus could do something about his physical sight too. By the end of the story, his physical sight is restored, and this actually changes the people, their opinion about Jesus at this time. They, he rises up and follows Jesus, glorifying God, and the people give praise to God for what they've seen. But the second story, which seems to happen very shortly after this, because in the first story, he's on the way into Jericho, and the second story, he's in Jericho, they're not going to like what he does again. In the last story, Luke tells us Jesus is drawing to the city. Second story, Jesus has arrived and is passing through. Luke draws our attention again to one man who is very similar to the blind man in certain ways, but is extremely different from him in other ways. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. This is the only time Zacchaeus is mentioned in the Bible. Luke is the only one to tell this story. Did you notice how Luke describes Zacchaeus? He wasn't just a tax collector like Levi. He was a chief tax collector. That would mean he likely had jurisdiction over maybe the whole city of Jericho, or at least a large portion of of it. So it mean he had several people working under him. Getting that position had probably cost him far more than what Levi had to pay to get his position. But he had apparently gotten what he was looking for because the text says he was rich. Okay, but now I want to just step back and I want to think just from the first description of him, can you compare and contrast Zacchaeus and the blind beggar of the last story? Okay, the stories are told side by side. Okay, think, how are they similar? Say, so, well, for one thing, and maybe we don't think about this, both of those men would have been very well known in that city. Now, it would have been for different reasons, but both of them would have been well known in the city. The blind beggar, they would have known him. He'd probably been there for a long time, and they would definitely know who Zacchaeus was. The second similarity is that both of those guys would have been viewed as outcasts in their city. But again, for very different reasons. But neither of them would have had any kind of social standing. So, for example, if someone in that city were hosting a banquet, I doubt he would have invited either person. Would have been for different reasons but I doubt he would have invited either one of them. But there are at least two huge differences between these two men as well. First is that the blind beggar, this is the obvious one, was dirt poor, completely destitute, while Zacchaeus was very wealthy. And the second has to do with power. The blind man had no power. He basically is the least powerful person in Jericho. But Zacchaeus had significant power. And not just that, Zacchaeus had totally misused his power. He had not used it to bless or to build. He had used it to extort people and to oppress them. Okay, those are the things I think we could come up with just from the first two verses, if you just think about it. But there's another similarity between the two men that we would not have expected. 
And you start to see that in the third verse of Luke 19. Look at Luke 19, verse 3. And Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. We would not have anticipated that, I don't think. That not just the blind man, but also Zacchaeus really wanted to see Jesus. Now we read on. But on account of the crowd, Zacchaeus could not get to Jesus because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Okay, so the similarity is they both want to see Jesus. But in both cases, in both stories, you notice how hard it is for them to get to Jesus. The crowd in the beggar story, the crowd and the fact that the beggar is blind, <coughs> made it really hard for him to get to Jesus. Those difficulties are what lead to him shouting out above the crowd for Jesus. When you get to Luke 19, the crowd is again in the way, an obstacle again to seeing Jesus. We actually saw that in the Luke 5 story as well about they wanted to bring the paralyzed guy. And the crowd is regularly in the Gospels in the way, making it hard for people to get to Jesus. But that's not the only hard thing for Zacchaeus. The other hard thing for him is that he was really short. And this is where I have this sudden impulse from my childhood to start singing, <laughs> you know, about Zacchaeus being a wee little man, but I'm going to suppress this uh, desire. But on his height, okay, I don't know if this will encourage some of you shorter fellows or not, uh, but it seems like Jewish men in the first century, most studies would have them ranging about 5'6 as normal height. So generally shorter than the average man in the United States today. But Zacchaeus is signified as being very short. Like, so 5'6, he's maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe he's, Five foot, something like this. So what does he do? Have you ever thought about a grown man actually doing this? Because he's short, and, and maybe because he's pretty convinced nobody is going to try to help him, you know, uh, he decides to take things into his own hands, and he knows the path Jesus is going to go through Jericho. And so he goes over and he climbs a tree. Like, when is the last time you, as an adult, climbed a tree? I mean, who does this? Now, perhaps he thought... Sycamore trees tend to have a lot of leaf cover. Perhaps he thought he wouldn't be seen in it. Or perhaps he just didn't care if he was or not. After all, he was already despised by everybody in the city. That was no surprise. He knew that. What really mattered to him is he wanted to get his eyes on Jesus. So he climbs and he waits. And then verse 5. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Now, in the story, we're not told exactly how that happens. But by the time Jesus gets to the tree, Jesus knows his name. He gets there. He's, again, he stops everything he's doing. And he looks up. Now, whether the crowd had seen Zacchaeus up there before or not, by this point, all their eyes would look up in the tree and see this grown man that they all know sitting up there in the tree. Now, that would have been surprising to see that, but it's what Jesus says that shocks everyone, Zacchaeus included. Jesus tells him, Zacchaeus, get down. I need to go to your house today. Now, from the crowd's perspective, what must they have thought? 
Now, of all the places in Jericho that Jesus could go, he's going to go to that man's house. From Zacchaeus' perspective, what must he have been thinking? I mean, he had just been hoping to maybe get his eyes on Jesus as Jesus passed him by. But to have Jesus publicly invite himself to his house. I don't think he ever dreamed of anything like that happening that day. So verse 6, so he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And this is the same in Luke. And when they saw it, they all grumbled about it. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That is what happens throughout Luke's gospel. For Zacchaeus, this is amazing. It leads to incredible joy for him. But for the crowd, it's an entirely different story. When they saw it, they all grumbled. And notice that Luke is careful to tell us that in this story, it was not just the religious leaders who grumbled. They all grumbled about this. Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man that they all hate. A man who is a big sinner. And you have to remember, Zacchaeus is a man who had actually hurt many of them. He was a man who had robbed many of them, and they hate him. But do you see what's happened? When Jesus arrives in Jericho, the people love him because of what he had just done to the blind beggar. But when Jesus invites himself into the home of a man they hate, the crowd turns on him. Jesus begins to bear the reproach Zacchaeus has earned for what he's done in the city. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't really care about what people think about him or say about him. He is on a mission, and his mission has taken him right into the house of a really bad man. Now, Luke takes us into the house. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood up, I think this is in the house, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And again, just like with the story of the blind man, Zacchaeus is actually seeing Jesus far better than most in the Gospel of Luke. He calls Jesus Lord. Zacchaeus stands up in front of everyone in his house and says, Lord, I'm going to give half of my stuff to the poor and I will restore anything I've wronged four times. What is that? What is he doing? That is called repentance. We don't know all that was said in the house, but Zacchaeus recognized that Jesus' call to him was to turn from what he had been chasing after what he had sold himself to, to turn from his many sins and to put his eyes on Jesus and to follow him. And Zacchaeus stands up in his house and says, in effect, Jesus, you're worth that. And Jesus said to him in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus had found the one his father Abraham longed for, the one God promised to send centuries before. And now I think the point of that last line 
is that Zacchaeus is now in his heart what he was before, only in flesh. He is now truly a son of Abraham. And when you step back from the story, what you see is that the point of the story isn't really so much that Zacchaeus found Jesus. Though that's true. He did find Jesus. But the greater reality in Luke's story and the way that he tells it is that Jesus has found Zacchaeus. And he found him because he was looking for him. Verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those two stories show us God's amazing grace and Jesus' pursuit of all kinds of sinners have taken us to these older stories of grace to help prepare us to hear some new stories of God's grace. Today we get the privilege to hear five such stories as we welcome new members into the church today. And in each story, there's an element of how each person has found Jesus, but behind that, and the reason they found Jesus is Jesus came looking for them. And my hope is that as we've listened to these Bible stories, and then as we listen to these news stories, we'll remember and be drawn to God's grace toward us and to thank Jesus that he looked for us too. He came to seek and to save the lost. And if you are among the found today, it's because Jesus sought for you. He went all the way to the cross to save us. He sought us and bought us with his redeeming blood. But I also hope if you happen to be here today but are not yet trusting Christ personally to save you, I hope that these stories are so compelling to you that God will use them to bring you to true repentance and faith in your own heart. No matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus' mercy can reach you. Jesus is looking for you. He came after all kinds of sinners. He came for the outcast. He came for the poor. He came for really big sinners. He came for the weak and the oppressed. And in the Zacchaeus story, we're reminded of things that we often don't like to think about in, in, in our culture, is that Jesus actually came for the rich sinners too. He came for the sinful oppressed, and he came for the sinful oppressor. He came for those who had been hurt and for those who had done the hurting. He came for all sinners to call them all to repentance and to offer them all forgiveness for what they had done. His mercy reaches beyond what any culture is comfortable with. Jesus never fits completely within any culture. His mercy goes deeper and wider than we feel comfortable with. He pursued people we may never have pursued. He ate with people that we may never have chosen to eat with. And praise God he did that, because if he didn't do that, we'd all still be lost, because not one of us is worthy. All that's required to be saved is true repentance over our sins and faith in Christ who died to take them away. There is no one beyond the reach of Christ's mercy. Because Jesus did not come to heal the healthy or to seek the found. He came to heal the sick 
and to save the lost. So let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending Jesus on a mission to seek and to save us and anyone who would be sick, anyone who would recognize their lostness can be found. We praise you for this. Thank you, Jesus, for coming after us. I thank you for those that we'll get to hear about how you found them and saved them and washed their sins away. I thank you for the gift of baptism and the table and how they show us in a visible way the gospel. I pray that even through this rest of our service, you will draw us all back to the gospel. And I pray that you may even bring some from death to life through this word and through these symbols today. In Jesus' name, amen.